Welcome again to Midtown 12 South. Um, glad you're here. If you're visiting with us, uh, very glad you're here. We'd love to get to know you. We'd love to be known by you also. So please uh, find me, find Joseph, find someone you see that doesn't look crazy um, and, um, or weird uh, and ask them about this place. We would love to, to talk to you about it. But we are in the middle, actually nearing kind of the end. We've got about three or four more weeks in this series that we've been looking at, Encounters with Jesus. We've been uh, studying uh, in the hopes that we would come to Jesus uh, in the unnatural way. It's very natural to come to anything and prejudge it and pre-decide uh, to pre-read a book uh, or judge a book by its cover. We, we don't want to do that with Jesus. We want to encounter the real Jesus. Who is he? What was he like? What did he love? Uh, what made him angry? Um, and what was his mission? And so we, we've, we've looked at all this um, as he has revealed to us in the Gospels that we actually believe that the Bible is the best uh, display and revelation of who God and who Jesus is. Um, we, we believe you can see God in nature and you can encounter him in your own, in the privacy of your own heart. But in this space, in this setting, for thousands of years, God has decided through the mystery and majesty of his plan of redemption to say, when this happens, when the church gathers and we open up the word, this is, I, I, am, I am present in a particular way. I reveal myself in a particular way. And so we want to come to Jesus, not judging what we think we know about him, but come to encounter who he says he is uh, in his encounter. So we looked at how he encounters children and how he encounters the woman at the well and Nicodemus and the sick. And um, we've looked at all these encounters. Uh, today we are looking at uh, an interesting one, one that it will be loaded with questions, I know, uh, as Jesus encounters a demon-possessed man. And I promise you, I will answer all of your questions in 25 minutes or less, okay? You will leave here with an airtight understanding of all the spiritual realms and everything that is possibly going through your, no, I'm kidding. You will not. You will have lots of questions. We're going to dive in nonetheless. So this is Luke chapter 8. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, Luke chapter 8, we also uh, will have it on the screen for you. This same story occurs in Matthew and in Mark. Different details are presented to us by different gospel authors the Mark version is much longer, but the same core uh, interaction is here for us in Luke. So this is Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 26. It says, Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes. He had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud, vo loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. The, then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, 
and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Mm, It's the word of the Lord. Amen. Uh, So brief recap. I know we just read it, but let me just kind of give you the lay of the land. These 13 verses, a lot happens. Uh, And so let me just recap us and then we'll dive in and see what we might pull from it. So Jesus sails across the Sea of Galilee. Right before this is when he calms one of the storms on the Sea of Galilee. So he's shown his power over nature. He gets to the other side and he is immediately uh, encountered by, approached by a demon-possessed man. We're told later in the story this man's name is Legion. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But Jesus, as soon as he sees this man, the demons begin pleading with Jesus uh, to basically have mercy on them, to not uh, torment them, and the man is pleading for it too. And so Jesus grants it. He commands the demons to leave this man and go into a herd of pigs. The pigs are destroyed. This huge flock of pigs is destroyed. Townspeople see what happened and they're terrified. So the townspeople start, and they're afraid of the demon-possessed man, and now they see Jesus, who's more powerful than the demons, and they're afraid of Jesus. They're even more afraid of Jesus. They're seized with great fear, it says. They ask Jesus to leave them based on what he's done. They don't know this Jesus guy. They just saw him basically use this demon-possessed man like a puppet, like you're way more powerful than the demons were, so what are you gonna do to us? You must be even worse than they were, so please leave us. And he does, which is amazing. And then the man who was healed, who had the demon, uh, demons in him, begs to go with Jesus. Like, I don't want to stay with these people. These people are weird. <laughs> it's like, they want you to leave, Jesus. I want to go with you. And Jesus says, actually, I'm sending you back to them. I want you to go tell not just them, but all the townspeople what God has done for you, which is a great lesson in evangelism. Just don't be weird, okay? Just tell people what God's done for you. That's it. That's all you got to do. Um, and so uh, that's how the story wraps up. And we could pull out a lot of things, and we will study this passage in detail. We're going to look at some particular details that is in the story. Here's what you need to know, though. These 13 verses, if we were kind of hitting the bullseye, the target on what is this story about? What is this story in one sentence or one point? Here it is. It's about displaying that Jesus has ultimate power over the darkness. That's it. The story right before this, he has ultimate power over nature and the created order. That's what he does. He calms the storm. He gets right off the boat into the, this area of the Gerasenes, and he shows his power over the spiritual realm and the darkness. Jesus isn't afraid of it. He's not thwarted by it. These demons are afraid of him. They're pleading mercy from him. All the spiritual powers of darkness that threaten the kingdom of God all shudder in the face of the king of the kingdom. That's it. That's the story. All the spiritual powers of darkness that threaten the kingdom of God shudder in the face of the king of the kingdom. Now, I know you've got questions. Because if you're in one of our small groups, which I would strongly encourage you to be in one of our small groups, we discuss the passage that is going to be preached on on Sunday. We discuss it the week leading up to it. And my small group and every small group I've talked to uh, had a lot to say, a lot of questions, had a lot of but what about this and what about that and how, do you, how are you gonna justify this and how are you gonna explain yourself on that? And, and there is a lot that this passage does not answer. 
I know when you read this passage, you want to ask questions like, well, does Midtown, does the Bible, do y'all, do y'all still believe in demon possession? And I'm telling you, we're not going to talk about that in the next 25 to 55 minutes, okay? Um, sorry, if you're new here, I struggle with that sometimes. Um, but here's what I need, I need you to know. I'm not asking you to keep your questions at the door. How dare you question the Bible? How dare you ask hard questions? I'm telling you some of those questions have answers. I'm just telling you that's not the things we're going to talk about in here. Jesus doesn't mind your questions. Jesus can handle your questions. He can handle demons. He can certainly handle your questions. He's, he's not afraid of them. He has power over the demons, and he certainly has some answers for some of your questions. I would just encourage you this way as we lean into this passage. Would you dare to believe that whatever burning question you've got about this passage in the spiritual realm and what we don't know and what we don't understand about all this, would you dare to step into a reality that says maybe the question that you're burning to ask and get answered isn't the most important question? Maybe there's something in this passage that we all need to lean into and learn from, and it might not be your burning question. In fact, maybe what you and I need from this passage goes so deep that it would actually be, I know this is crazy, it would actually be a work of the enemy to get you to focus on your burning question instead of leaning into the passage. Because this passage is about Jesus' ultimate power over the darkness and the demonic. He is not afraid of it. He is not thwarted by it, and all the spiritual powers of darkness that threaten the kingdom of God shudder in the face of the king of this kingdom. And is it possible that you and I need that, even if we don't get all of our questions answered this morning? If we're going to understand Jesus' power over the darkness as displayed in this story, we have to first learn about, or at least try to study, the darkness in this passage. We're going to look at how does the darkness work? How is the darkness uh, moving? How is the darkness, what, it, what is the pattern of darkness that we see in this story that we can maybe learn from? Because here's what I know. I know if, even if I haven't knowingly encountered a demonic, demonically possessed person in 12 South, I have encountered demonic forces in 12 South. And I have encountered the spiritual powers of darkness in this congregation. That I know the darkness that lives in me. And I know the darkness that lives in you. And so we could categorize it, but were you possessed? And have you ever met someone that was demon possessed? And I would go, maybe, I don't know. But here's what I know. I know about the darkness. And I know what the darkness is about doing. And I know in all of its manifestations, it is conniving and it's scheming and it's working to push back against the kingdom of God. Like in this room. And so wouldn't it be so great, like Kaiser Soze says, that the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to convince the world that he didn't exist. Like wouldn't it be so great if you were so focused on getting the the crazy spiritual answer for the supernatural realms that we don't understand, could we dive into that and all the curious things about that? Sure, we could. But wouldn't he love to have us focus on that instead of learning about how the darkness moves and grooves in the world? I promise there are answers to some of your questions. I promise there are things that Jesus is not afraid of. I also know that there is darkness in us and around us that we need to learn about, that we might be better equipped to understand it and to know where it loses its power. It would be naive and reductionalistic to assume that spiritual darkness is not real in the world. 
You can say all you want that uh, evil is a social construct that we've developed over time and that we are far, far more enlightened now than these archaic first century Jews that believed in spiritual warfare and spiritual realms. We've imagined this idea of spiritual realms because it was opioid for the masses and we've had to have this to make sense of our lives. But that's not the Bible's approach to these things. And we also don't want to commit like generational arrogance that thinks we're so enlightened and well instructed now, we understand how archaic and ancient stories like this were. That science and medicine has really explained a lot of things that the Bible doesn't understand, and that's wrong. That's actually not true. Here's what else I know. Every language in the history of the world has a word for evil. Now you may go, oh, that's an interesting factoid. It also should help explain to you that if a society can't define evil, society crumbles. Every society in the history of the world has to be able to say, that, that's evil, that's darkness, that's wrong, that's not okay. And so we can say, oh, it's a social construct and we've inherited this and now we're enlightened and we don't need this anymore. That's not the Bible's approach to understanding spiritual darkness and spiritual powers in the world. Certainly, there are different levels of darkness to be experienced. And while, I, again, I do not have all the answers to all the questions about demon possession, I do know this. Jesus believed in demons. And the New Testament's very clear about this, that uh, their, their captain, the devil, Satan, who Jesus also believed in, uh, roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour in the world. And he's way more sophisticated. He's had thousands of years of practice. He's really good at what he does. And so he doesn't necessarily come the way that you would expect him to come. And the New Testament gives that nuanced understanding of the enemy. The New Testament gives a really broad understanding of how the darkness and the spiritual powers of darkness work in the world. Here's how the roaring lion, the enemy, Satan, the devil, moves in the world. The New Testament says this. Yes, he can move through demon possession. You know how else he can move? The New Testament says this in multiple places. It's demonic to practice pride. That when you engage in arrogant pride, you are giving a gateway to Satan. It also says, 1 John says, if you hate your brother, you're participating with the devil. Like these, it's like, oh, no, 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 but we're, we're talking about demon possession. Or maybe we're not. Maybe Satan, in his vast wisdom of how to move and groove in the world, knows I can actually move my spiritual powers of darkness forth in the world just by having someone hold a grudge against their neighbor. C.S. Lewis famously said that hell begins with a grumble. Anybody grumbled this week? Like, that's a pathway to hell. That's how Satan works. The New Testament is trying to give you a far more broad, far more nuanced, far more multifaceted approach to understanding how the spiritual powers of darkness work in the world. I, I know we could talk about, oh, but give us like the campfire stories. Like you've, you've seen crazy things. Yes, I've been to Vandy Psych Hospital and had people ask me to do an exorcism. We're not talking about that this morning. I've been to Haiti and seen the voodoo and seen things with my own eyes that you would go, there's no way that's real. And I would go, come to Haiti with me. That there is real things going on in the world, but this is not about, oh, let's get the cool stories and get all of our questions answered. Like, what, what, was that serial killer? Was he possessed by Satan? I don't know, but I know this. I know that there are real spiritual powers of darkness in the world that are working, like, right now. Not out there, in here. And the New Testament is saying there are ways that the darkness works. There are forces of darkness that work in the world. And they would love for you to believe that the demonic is only talking about crazy people like this in Luke chapter 8. He would love for that to happen. 
Because then he has a field day on all the other ways that he gets to work that we have no clue about. So what we're going to try to do this morning is understand, hey, how does the darkness work? How does the darkness seek to devour us? And are there patterns of darkness that we can study in this passage that we are very familiar with? Because here's what I know about you, even if I don't know you, but you're breathing and you haven't numbed your life out so much that you can actually be present with the world. Here's what I know about you. You know that spiritual darkness is real. You know the torment, you know the despair, you know the sleepless nights, you know the hopelessness, you know the cynicism, you know the abuse, you know the injustice, you know the horror, you know the restless anxiety, you know the oppressive thoughts, you know the exhaustion, you know all that is not as it should be in the world. And here's what the Bible has to say about that space for you. Do you know it's perpetuating that and everything else that is not as it should be in the world? The darkness. The darkness is. The darkness, the kingdom of darkness is perpetuating itself, is trying to push itself forward against the kingdom of light in the world. This power is real. The spiritual powers of darkness are real. The anti-kingdom is real This is why Star Wars calls it the dark side and why Mordor is pitch black because these are great metaphors to try to understand the oppressive nature of obsessive thoughts, the oppressive nature of addiction, the oppressive nature of broken family systems, the oppressive nature of, of abuse, the oppressive nature of anxiety. All of that stuff is the spiritual powers of darkness. Now, I'm not saying that every time you've ever experienced any of those things we just listed that you were possessed by a demon. I'm not saying that. The Bible's not saying that. The Bible's saying that there is real spiritual darkness that is really pushing itself forth. And sometimes when you're being oppressed by darkness, you know what you need? A nap. And sometimes you know what you need? You need a friend to go on a walk with you. And sometimes what you need is you need to come in church and worship. And sometimes what you need is you need to go eat a meal with friends. And sometimes what you need is you need to pray. Like, they're, 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 the, the Bible is so clear about this. I'm not saying that if you're sick, don't go to the hospital, just pray the demon away. I'm saying if you're sick, go to the hospital, and the oppression that might happen because of that torment and taunt, you might need some real friends with real prayer, with a real Jesus to come fight that battle with you. So in this story, we'll see some of the ways that demons and darkness were coming after this man and the ways that demons and darkness come after us in the same way. We're going to look at, first, how does the darkness seek to transform us? This man, this demon-possessed man, is being tormented by the darkness. That's a word that's used in here. He's tormented. But when this tormented man encounters Jesus, King Jesus, the, the tormentors are terrified of Jesus. They beg Jesus to not further torment them, and the man does too. Because what they're saying is, is we have a power, we have power over this man, but we've now encountered someone who is more powerful than us, and now all that we know about power is that it torments. So this man is saying, if, you're more, if these demons inside of me are scared of you, please don't torment me worse than they're tormenting me. So how are they tormenting him? Let's see how this man was tormented and seeking to be transformed by the darkness. What was the darkness seeking to do to him? Two things we're going to look at. The first tool of darkness, the first tool of evil, the first tool of the demonic is that it gives us power, but it keeps us enslaved. 
The first tool of darkness is that it gives us power but keeps us enslaved. Look with me at first, verse 29. Will we throw this up there? Verse 29 says this. For he had commanded, the, that's Jesus, he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Okay. This man lives in a cemetery. This man is naked. The Mark version of this story says that at night he would shrill and shriek among the tombs and cut himself with stones. So he's a bleeding, shrieking, naked man that sleeps in a graveyard. Terrifying. And so, of course, these townspeople, like, they need to protect the children from crazy man down the street in the cemetery who's shrilling and shrieking every night and cutting himself, and he's naked. And so what do they do? They bind him in shackles. They bind him up. They use prisoner shackles to keep him bound. And what does he do? Somehow, when he's put in shackles from time to time, he would go incredible hulk on them and break through the shackles. He has superhuman strength he has super power. He has a superhuman ability to break through prisoner shackles to break himself out. But the moment he's freed from his shackles, what does he do? What happens to him? He would be led by the demon back into the wilderness, back into the desert to be further tormented. He has superhuman strength to break out of shackles. Does his superhuman strength actually set him free? When he breaks out of the shackles, does he have the agency then to live as a free man? Or is he still bound by something? No, because the darkness loves to give you a little bit of power but still keep you enslaved. Here's what that means for us. Here are the parallels for that. Is that no one in this room is really as free as they think they are. We're all enslaved to something, because whatever you seek most in this life will become your Lord. And I'm sorry to tell you that not all lords set you free. But whatever you have sought most has become your master functionally, has become your Lord functionally. And it seeks to not only give you a little bit of hit of the power, it seeks to keep you enslaved to itself. Here's what that means. If you seek power, you will be enslaved by getting more power. If you seek acceptance, you will be enslaved to the people that you want to really like and accept you. You will not be free. You will be controlled by the Lord of your life. Everyone in the room has something that they believe, if I got that thing, then I would have it. If I got the thing I'm seeking, then I would be okay. If I could just achieve this, if I could just secure that, if I could just know this, I would then be safe and secure. And that thing, whatever it is, whatever it is that you say I love so much, I will, I will work towards that end. Here's what it does to you. It galvanizes you to work to get more more of it, to work to get to that end. And when it galvanizes you to work towards it, it enslaves you. It takes away your power. If you decide to live for power, you will be bound and enslaved to having more power. If you decide to live for your career, you will be bound and enslaved to get the career that you want. You will not be free. 
you will be enslaved. If you are dead set, if you have to live, if you have to live a life that you will end up having a life at the end of your life, a life of no regrets, you will be bound in this time, in the present, by living an epic life all the time because I will not get to my deathbed and have regrets. So I will be enslaved to making sure I have a life that has no regrets in 40 years. If you are if you are dead set, if you have set the Lord of your life, that I will have a life where I never experience any shame. If you say, I will not get to the point in life where I ever feel any shame, I will not feel any of, I will not feel ashamed, you will be bound to perfection. You will be enslaved to doing everything right every time, knowing what's around every corner, figuring out every plan, making sure you never mess up, because I will not live a life of shame and failure. But you're bound, you're not free. And what the Bible says, bluntly, is that if you're not dealing with Jesus as your Lord, you are not free. There is one Lord that sets you free, but only Jesus as your Lord will set you free. Any other master means you are living underneath the lordship of the devil. And I'm not trying to go, ooh, spooky, you're living and working for the devil. I'm saying, unless Jesus is your Lord, then you have something that the devil has set before you. He has you, and you are not free. You are still bound to it, even if he gives you a little bit of power with it. Here's what I mean by that. Because little by little, bit by bit, Satan will, will present to you, you need more control, you need more money, you need more acceptance, you need that, your body needs to look a little bit better than it does. And every little hit of that, you will get a little bit more money, you'll feel the power of that, you'll break through the shackles, you'll have this moment of power, and you'll still be bound. You'll get a little bit more acceptance, and the hit of that will feel so good that you'll be bound to get more of it your body will start to look a little bit better. I, I'm exercising, I'm dieting, I'm crossfitting like a weirdo, and I have to, and, I, and, then I, and now, I like, now I start looking good, and now, now I have to look even better, I have to look younger, I have to keep it this way. It will, it will carry you on in, further into itself by giving you a little bit of power, but it will keep you enslaved to it, which is exactly what's happening to this person, this demon-possessed man. You will still be bound. You will not be free if you get the relationship that has, made, that has been made Lord of your life, if you get the paycheck that has been made Lord of your life, if you get the career that has been made Lord of your life, underneath all of that is this baseline anxiety, this baseline fear, this baseline drivenness that is saying, but it's not enough. You have to have more of it and it will keep you in shackles to itself. So the first thing we see the power of darkness doing, the pattern of darkness and the demonic in the world is that it gives you some sort of power but keeps you enslaved. That's what's happening to this man. And then we see the second thing. The longer that that pattern continues, the longer that, it gives, that the darkness gives us some power but keeps us enslaved, here's what the darkness really loves to do to us. The darkness loves to rename us. Look at verse 30 with me. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. The Mark version of this story, Jesus comes up to him and says, what is your name? And he says, Legion, for we are many. And there's an interesting reality about how this man answers. When Jesus asks him, uh, who are you? What is your name? 
there's this confusion that happens, and his answer is part of the confusion. He answers in the first person, like when Jesus asked him, the man. But then somehow this mixture of who's answering this question? Is it the demons or is it the man? He, he asks the man, but then the many answer. And actually all commentators point this out, of the Luke version of the story and the Mark version of the story. All commentators point this out. There's this confusing nature to this interaction between Jesus and this man where the reader can't really tell who's speaking. Is it the man or is it the demons? Is it the demons or is it the man? We can't really tell, and that's the point. That's what's meant. It's not just it's confusing to read. How confusing do you think it was to hear? Like with the people who were standing there, like, wait, 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 did Jesus is talking to the man, but I can't, like, who's asking to be cast out? Is the man asking for it or are the demons asking for it? Who's answering the name question? Is it him or is it the demon? I can't, and it's like, exactly. That's, that's the point. When he asks, when Jesus asks this man the question and the listener can't tell who's answering, everybody's sitting there wondering, and this is the kind of the deeper level of what's going on, who is this man? What is his identity? Who is he? What's his sense of self in his psyche? Like, who is he at the core? No one can tell. He can't even tell. When Jesus asks him what his name is, either he or the demons answers legion. Legion was a term from the Roman military. In the first century, it has a, whole, a wide range of what number is attached to that. It's anywhere from 3,500 troops to 8,000 troops at the time of Jesus. But Legion is a large, very large troop of soldiers. In the Mark version of the story, we're told that when Jesus grants permission to the demons to leave this man, and then they, they flood into a herd of pigs, that the many, the legion, went into a herd of 2,000 pigs. Now, I don't know what, like, the demon-to-swine ratio is these days, okay? <laughs> Not up to date on that. You might be. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. I know that it's at least 2,000 demons were in this man. 2,000 demons inside this man. This man has no idea who he is. There are many inside of him. I am legion, for we are many. It's like, sorry, what? Not following like the, the personal pronoun usage. Like you started in the singular, but now you're over here in the pearl. Like none of this makes sense. Exactly. This man has no clue what his identity is which is exactly what evil and darkness want to do to us. It wants to rename us. And in so renaming us with many different voices, with many different names, it wants to rename us to such a degree that we actually end up having no idea who we actually are. Evil and darkness wants to split you into pieces where you don't even know who you are anymore. You can't tell who you are anymore. You don't even know the answer to the question, who are you? Because evil and darkness would love to split you, for we are many. The psychiatric way of talking about this, and many people smarter than me have helped me understand this, but the psychiatric way of talking about this is that darkness literally wants to disintegrate you. And the root of that is it wants to disintegrate you. 
at the brain and psyche level, it wants to rewire you. It wants to rewire your brain level where you, you were made to be an integrated self. You were made to have all the functions of your brain integrate together, the wording and the creativity and the emotions and the, and the joys and the dreams and the pictures and the relationships. We're all meant to be integrated at the brain level. But you know what darkness and evil wants to do to you? It wants to disintegrate you. And that happens with trauma, with loss, with sorrow, with sin, with addiction. It literally disintegrates us, and the darkness is celebrating. The darkness wants to so separate and disconnect the functions of your mind that it will disconnect you from yourself, and if it can disconnect you from yourself, if it can disintegrate you from yourself, guess who you are also going to be disintegrated from? Everybody else. Legion wasn't getting invited to many parties. He's crazy. He doesn't even know who he is. We can't have him around. Do you know that that's where darkness wants to lead you, is into utter isolation? If you don't know who you are, no one else will. And so if you don't know what's going on, if you've been disintegrated, if you've been so disintegrated at the mind and brain and psyche level, then you will not just be all alone in your own mind. You will be all alone. You will not know who you are and no one else will either. You will have no intimacy. You will have no vulnerability. You will have no community. And I'm not blaming you for that. I'm saying, do you know that that's what darkness wants to do to you? It wants you to be disintegrated. It wants you to be isolated. It wants you to have no idea who you are so that no one else can have any idea who you are either. Like, have you ever tried to be present with a friend when you're depressed? You can't do it. It's literally, nearly, like functionally impossible. I can't even be here with you because I'm so disintegrated. Have you ever tried to create something when you're covered in shame? It's almost like literally not functionally possible. Your brain cannot do it because you have been disintegrated. You've so been disintegrated that you don't know who you are anymore and then none of your brain or sense of self is working together to be an integrated, whole, flourishing self. Darkness wants to do that to you. Darkness wants to rename you. It wants to name you Legion too. It wants you to know that, that you are many. You don't have a singular name. You're arrogant and you're a screw up. You're abandoned and you deserved it. You're confused and you're lost. You're awful and probably don't have much chance of relationship ever again. And so at the end of the day, all these names that are coming at you, this is who you are. And But this morning I kind of felt like this and then this afternoon I kind of feel like this and now when I'm trying to fall asleep, I can't even tell who I am anymore. And darkness is going, exactly, there are many of you. Evil would love to split you. Evil would love to talk to you with the voices that will try to tell you who you are and you would have no idea what they're saying. Think, think about this now. I know this is kind of a modern uh, day cliche, like all the voices in my head. But think about, think about this man. He had at least 2,000 voices going on in his head. How do you think he's doing? Like how do you think he's sleeping? How, what do you think his like sense of peace is? What do you think his sense of inner shalom is? What do you think his like 
healthy community and knowing and being known, needing and being needed, like all of that healthy relational dynamics that we would all say, yes, that sounds like you're a whole, you're a whole person. Not him. He's got 2,000 voices competing for airspace inside of his mind. You think your mind's racing. You think you got a lot of voices competing for airtime. All the self-hatred, all the anxiety, all the awful fantasies of this man, all the fear, he can't shut them up. He can't stop the voices from coming. He can't stop it. And it's literally disintegrated him. It's what evil and darkness have done to this man. It's what it does to us too. Darkness loves to give us power but keep us enslaved. And the more it does that, the darkness loves to rename us and disintegrate us. But then, look at how this story wraps up. It, it, it's meant to kind of punch this way as the story wraps up. We're just looking at how the story wraps up for this man. Uh, Creve Hall congregation today, Dave Bird and their pastor is preaching about the townspeople. We're not looking at them today. That's a whole other sermon, how they react. So go listen to that one. Um, but don't think it's that much better. I mean, this was the better place to come. Okay, I'm kidding. But I'm disintegrating right now. Uh, verse 35. Look at verse 35, how the story ends up for this man. Then the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Okay, so wait, 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 wait. This naked, incredible Hulk, psycho, lunatic, shrilling, shrieking, sleeping in a graveyard man that everybody's terrified of, is now clothed, quieted, and calmed, sitting at the feet of Jesus. We get one line of the description of this man after he's been rescued. The whole nine or ten verses leading up to this, it's, it's mentioned all the chaos is all over the place. He lives in the tombs and he shrills and he shrieks and he's got demons and he's screaming and, he, and he's naked and he's demon-possessed, he's demon-possessed, he's demon-possessed, all this crazy. And it's meant to be juxtaposed in the text from the description of how he is after Jesus rescues him. It's like five words. Because there isn't the chaos anymore. He's been reintegrated. He's not disintegrating. He's been reintegrated. He's been renamed. And look at what that does to him. He's calmed. He's clothed. He's quiet, sitting at the feet of Jesus. So how did the voices all stop? How did the tormenting end? How did he get this free? He's free to sit at the feet of Jesus how did the severe darkness in this man get transformed? Book of John, chapter one, verse five. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There's a light, there's a man, the light of the world that can shine into the darkness, the demonic darkness of this man and the demonic darkness in you, that the darkness cannot overcome. Have you ever walked into a dark room and turned on the light? 
In the words of Thad Cockrell, against the darkness, don't you know the light will win? <laughs> like it, the darkness is no match for the light. Jesus, the light of the world, is greater than the darkness. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Jesus, the light of the world, is greater than the darkness. As much as the darkness seeks to transform you, we believe that there is a power, a light greater to restore you. Look at what he does for this man. Look at the light that Jesus shines and brings into this man's darkness. Look at how Jesus overcomes the darkness that the darkness cannot overcome him. Look with me again at verse 31 through 33. This is how Jesus does it. And they, legion, begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Okay, so Jesus does this a lot. Because this is, this is very rabbinical. This is, very, like, this is what rabbis did. Their, their teaching, they would always give like an object lesson. Like they were constantly using like real world things to make their point, to prove their, their teaching. Jesus' miracle here is the illustration for the, teach, for the reality. So it's kind of the truth in a picture of this is how Jesus approaches and defeats the darkness. Jesus quiets the darkness by drowning it. He wants the people to see all these spiritual powers of darkness that is totally tormenting this man and renaming him and disintegrating him. I drown that kind of stuff. I drown it out. It's no match for me. Jesus quiets the darkness by drowning it. So how does he drown our darkness? Well, in the story, the demons uh, plead with him. They, get, they have this little interesting uh, recommendation or request of Jesus. They say, don't send us into the abyss. Don't send us into the abyss. And you go, what's the abyss? Like, doesn't sound like that drowning in the body of pigs was, was great. So what, what, was, what was better about that than being sent into this kind of uh, this vague thing called the abyss? What's the abyss? Well, Revelation chapter 9, Revelation chapter 20, several other places in the New Testament talk about the abyss. Here's what the abyss is. The abyss is the ending resting place of Satan and all of his minions. The abyss is the place of final judgment for Satan and his armies. The abyss is the final defeat, the final condemnation of these demons. And so when they plead with Jesus, Jesus, don't send us into the abyss. What they're saying to Jesus is, could we just have like kind of a purgatory of hell kind of thing for a little bit? Because we don't want our final judgment now. It'd be better for us to die and drown with those pigs. It'd be, it'd be better for us to have that than to face our final judgment. Jesus, don't make us face our final judgment right now. We know that that's our end. We know that that's what's coming for us. We know that we will be in the abyss one day. We don't want to go there now. Will you give us a temporary freedom before our final 
resting place. The abyss, we're told in Revelation chapter 20, the final resting place of the devil and all of his friends, we're told in Revelation 20 it will be the place where they are tormented day and night. Which is interesting to think about um, if you want to ponder, you know, dark things. Uh, what would torment Satan and his minions for all eternity? What would torment them day and night? What torments the demons in the abyss? It means that they know there's going to be some, don't send us to the abyss, Jesus, because we're going to be tormented there day and night. We can't bear the thought of that tormenting. What would torment them? They know that there's not just uh, the power that Jesus has to cast them out of this man. They know what Jesus is going to have to do to achieve permanent tormenting victory over them. And they know they will forever live in the torment that those that they came to oppress, King Jesus came to save. And they will have to deal with the fact that who they were sent to torment, rename, and disintegrate, Jesus came to rescue. And it will torment them that their defeat is not just actual, but permanent. It's the victory of King Jesus over the darkness. And Jesus displays that here for this demon-possessed man. You're being tormented. You're being enslaved. You're being renamed. You're being disintegrated. But I came to defeat those that torment you. I came to rename you. I came to torment those that would torment you. And here's how Jesus would do it. Because in just a few years from this moment, Jesus himself would be naked. Jesus himself would cry out. Jesus himself would be led to the tomb. And Jesus is saying, I'll be disintegrated for you. I'll be the one that gets disintegrated. I'll be the one that loses my entire sense of self. I'll be disintegrated so that you don't have to be. I'll hang naked on cross beams so that I could clothe you with myself. And in the gospel, it actually says that Jesus went a step further. It's not just that he suffered the human humiliation of this. The gospel says that Jesus went to the abyss for you. That the final judgment that you deserve and the final judgment that I deserve, Jesus went and faced that final judgment. He bore it and he drank it to the bottom. And so now your abyss, your final judgment, here's what Jesus, by the power of his work on our behalf, here's what it says to us. Your abyss, your darkness has been drowned in the blood of Jesus. He didn't just go to the abyss he came out victorious on the other side and he so defeated the darkness that now the darkness doesn't have power over you. It can feel like it does. When the voices are screaming and the naming is happening and the disintegration is taking place, it can feel like the power of the darkness is real, real enough to own you forever. And the work of Jesus says, I actually came to drown that darkness in my blood. It doesn't have power over you anymore. It can make you think it's naming you, but nothing can take my name away from you. Doesn't matter how much you believe in it on a Tuesday. It matters that I drowned them. It, it is as real as those herdsmen in that town coming and looking at the drowned pigs, which what a sight. 
thousands of pigs shrilling and shrieking, drowning in the water, and he's going, yeah, yeah, that's what I do to your voices. That's what I do to the darkness that oppresses you. That's what I do to, that, to those that would seek to torment you. He drowned the darkness so that when he is your Lord, he can actually set you free. And who the Son sets free is free indeed. He drowned the darkness so that he can rename you. He was disintegrated so that he could reintegrate you. So that now you can flourish, you can create, you can love, you can know and be known. You can be wholly alive because the darkness has been drowned by the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we wear so many names. And we may not know what it's like to be truly possessed by a demon, but we absolutely know what the darkness says to us. We know the hits of power that come when we serve other masters. We know we know we're still in chains, and we know with those chains on what the darkness says to us, the names it wants to give us. And so, Jesus, as we come to your table now, as we come to get our new name, as we come to remember the cost you paid to give us our name, would you give us freedom here? Would you clothe us, calm us, and quiet us at your feet? We pray in your name. Amen.